I know uh, it's weird. I know we hadn't met together for in-person services in the last two weeks, and, and we're here today, but we're all spaced out, and the rows are spread out, and uh, we've got our masks coming in the building, and, it, and it's, it's weird. But man, the energy difference in this room from this Sunday to last Sunday, it's just, I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, I, I'm sure the worship team would attest to this. I mean, I just, it's the power of gathering together. And I know we can't all gather together right now. I totally get that. I fully expected that most of us would be online today uh, with the spike that's going on locally. And we didn't have any children's ministry today or student ministry. And then uh, it was, it's Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving coming up Thursday. And I had people telling me, like, listen, we'd love to be there, but we, we don't want to mess up our Thanksgiving gathering. Like, just in case. We're just playing it extra safe and extra cautious. So that's fine. I totally understand that. And, and we're going to be this way for the rest of the winter I mean, it's, uh, it's going to probably be spring before we're, people are comfortable getting back out. We hope the vaccine comes and all of those things come that enable us to gather again. But I'm telling you, and I know you guys online would agree with this and say amen to it. There's just something about gathering together with other people and singing together and taking communion together and worshiping God together. It's just that there, was a, there was an energy and a spirit in the room today, and I hope you felt it online. Uh, I, know, I know that sometimes that translates and sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on what's going on in your house at the time. But uh, I hope you felt it online because it was a powerful, powerful day of worship. Uh, today's kind of a big day for us because we finish the story today. We wrap this up. We've been talking about this. This is a 15-week series. I, I, I can't remember the last time or if I've ever done a 15-week series. But mid-August, we've been reading through the entire Bible together. And uh, if you finished it, or you're going to finish it this week, congratulations. You know, I hope it was an enjoyable experience for you. I hope it inspired you and enriched your faith. If you didn't finish it, and there's no way you're going to finish it this week, like you're way, way behind, just keep reading. I mean, there's not, you don't have to stop reading just because the series stops. So if you're way behind, just keep reading. Get to the end of the book because the end of the story is worth it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the end of of the story. Next Sunday is Advent. So we're going to be doing something next Sunday for the first Sunday of Advent. We're going to be doing uh, something called Missing Advent. And I'm going to explain kind of what all that is on Thanksgiving. So you got to watch my social media channels. I hope you follow me on Instagram and Facebook. We're going to drop a little video that'll tell you what Advent is going to be about this year. But that's, that's next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. This Sunday, we're going to finish up the story. And we're going to do it by talking about the most uh, controversial the most confusing, the weirdest book in the Bible. And it's the book, we're talking about Revelation. It's the very last book of the Bible. And it's the message that if you knew I was going to talk about it today, you were probably looking forward to it and I was dreading it. Because Revelation is uh, the most misunderstood, the most uh, abused and misused and misapplied book of the Bible. And when people found out that I was going to be talking about it today, I was like, get ready, because I'm going full-scale apocalyptic. I've been threatening everybody this week. Like, I'm going, like, we're going to talk all about it. You know, like, we're going to hit, you know, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, and Biden's the Antichrist, and Big Pharma's Babylon, and uh, North Korea is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if you divide 2020 by 3.03, you get 666. Think about that. 
I don't know what the significance of that is, but think about that. And, and, and that's a pretty popular way of interpreting the book of Revelation. We see a lot of that. Like if you go on the internet and you listen to a lot of preachers, you see a lot of that. Like a lot of conspiracy theories revolve Revelation. And a lot of like every war or threat of war, every earthquake, every natural disaster, every time some other dictator rises up, we have something that pops up. And it, it's happened a bunch in 2020 for obvious reasons, right? We're dealing with a pandemic. We've had economic concerns. You know, so we had a contentious election. It's happened a bunch in 2020, but guys, it was happening in 2019, it was happening in 18, it was happening in 17, it was happening. You can just go back through time. Every generation has tended to interpret the book of Revelation in this way. And I wasn't trying to be political by saying Biden is the Antichrist, and somebody's probably going to clip that out and say, you know what our preacher said this morning? I wasn't trying to be political, okay? Before Biden, Trump was the Antichrist. Before Trump, Obama was the Antichrist. Before Obama, uh, George W. was the Antichrist. Before W., it was Clinton. Like, you just go through, and you, I promise you, you can Google those searches, and every one of them will pull up that one of those guys was the Antichrist. Before North Korea, it was uh, Iran. Before Iran, it was Russia. Before Russia, it was Germany. I mean, we can just go back through the history. And I wanted to talk about this book for a long time. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about talking about it today. And if you saw my picture on Instagram, you saw like the big stack of books. It was like, you know the sermon's just 20 minutes, right, preacher? Uh, like I was preparing for a full series because I've wanted to do a series on Revelation for the last three or four years. And I've had it in the preaching schedule the last three or four years. I've had a series on Revelation, and this is what I was going to title it. It's Revelation, not Revelations, because there's no S on the end of it. So it's Walmart, not Walmarts. Okay, there's no S on the end of it. And we get even the name confused when it comes to Revelation. Because the, the series was going to be about all the ways that we confuse this book. And really what we do with Revelation, I think we're very guilty of it a lot, is we can't see the forest for the trees. We get so hung up on the symbolism and the visions and all the weird and confusing stuff. And I'll be the first to admit there's weird and confusing stuff in the book of Revelation. There is. It's, it's a specific type of literature called apocalyptic literature. And there's no other book like it in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Daniel gets close in part of Daniel. Not all of Daniel is apocalyptic, but Daniel gets a little bit close to that. But it's highly symbolic. And it's, when we're so removed by time and culture, it's very difficult for us to understand exactly what's going on there. But I think that John's readers in the first century, the, the original audience that John wrote this letter to, I think they knew what he was talking about. I don't think it was weird and confusing to them. I, yes, it's full of symbolism, but I'll kind of give some examples of how we can use symbolism today and all of us understand what we're talking about, but 2,000 years from now, people will be really, really confused if they happen to hear that or read that. So where we're going to go is Revelation 21. Uh, if you've got a Bible, and I'm going to use the screen, but if you've got a Bible, go to Revelation 21 and 22 because to me, that's the heart of John's message. The last two or three chapters of Revelation is the heart of his message and what he's trying to communicate. And um, it's not difficult to understand what he's, what he's communicating there. We, you're very familiar with these verses, actually, most of these verses. So that's where we're going to get to. But first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how we understand chapters 1 through 20. Because those are the parts that trip us up a little bit. So uh, we're going to get just a little bit... Uh, Bible nerdy for just a minute. If you give me five minutes of Bible nerd material, so if that's not if you're not into that sort of thing, check Facebook, um, and you get you take a little break. So give me just a minute. There's four different ways that people have historically understood the Book of Revelation, and whoa, I missed them. 
Is that my fault, Ty? There we are. Okay, four different ways that people have interpreted this book. There's preterist. Preterist put, understand the book as in its first century context. So they understand that most, if not all, of the book of Revelation has already taken place. It was prophesying things that were to come with the fall of Jerusalem and, and uh, emperor, uh, the emperor of Rome and, and Rome being the mark of the beast and all, all these kinds of things. So most of it, the preterist would say, we understand in its first century setting, most of it's already taken place. Historist was kind of what I was picking on a little bit at the beginning of this. Historist uh, believe that Revelation is revealing prophecies from the first century all the way through the 21st century. So they're constantly trying to go back through history and tie historical events to actual events, prophecies in Revelation. And they say, well, the Cold War was this, or you know, World War II was this, or Hitler was this, or whatever. You know, like they're trying to tie those events together so that they can come to a conclusion about when the world is going to end. Futurists are a little bit different from historians. Futurists believe that none of it's taken place yet, that everything in the book of Revelation is about future events. So everything that it's talking about, the great tribulation and all these things, all of it is to come, none of it's taken place yet. And then the idealist is the last group who say, all of you are wrong. Uh, it's just symbolic. It's just symbolism. It's symbolism about some of the timeless truths of good over evil. That's all it is. Now, when I look at these and I, and I study these, um, the, the one that that I, li I like number four. Number four is appealing to me, I have to admit. Like, I, I like, you know, Todd, his interpretation of Revelation has always been, to, you know, because we've talked about it before. He's like, why would you do a series on Revelation? All you got to do is say, there's a battle between good and evil, and in the end, good wins. Done. That's the book. <laughs> that's, that's what the book is about. Um, that's appealing. That's very, very appealing. I tend to lean a little bit more to, whoop, go back, Todd, to that list for me. I tend to lean a little bit more to uh, number one right there. That's just, and there's several reasons why I tend to lean that way. Because that's the way we interpret every other book of the Bible. I don't think we should throw out our interpretation rules whenever we come to Revelation just because we don't understand it. So the way we interpret every other book of the Bible is we look at it in its historical context. And we try to understand what was it saying then to them so what was it saying to the original audience? What was John trying to communicate to his original first century audience? And I think they probably knew what he was talking about. I think it would be weird that God would inspire John to write a book to encourage Christians that none of them could understand until 2020. Like, you know, now in 2020, now we understand it because we can put together these events with what's going on in the world and all that kind of stuff. I, I just think that would be kind of odd. So I think John was writing a message for a specific reason to a specific audience. And we need to try to understand what he was trying to say to that original audience because it can't mean to them what it never meant to us. That's why I can't say, I don't think the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast because that would not mean that to them in the first century. So it can't mean to them what it never meant to us. And, and all that is... And I'm sorry, this nerd moment went a little longer than expected. All that is, is exegesis. That's what that's called, biblical exegesis. You're, you're trying to determine the original intended meaning. What did it mean to the original audience? That's, that's all you're trying to determine there. We do this all the time. When we read books and letters and pieces of history, we constantly do this. We ask in our minds, unconsciously, who wrote this, when was it written, and most importantly, why was it written? And even when we use symbolism, we can still piece the pieces together. My example. Um, if I was to say, if I was to write you an email tomorrow and say, Sleepy One 
but MAGA ain't giving up. You all know what I mean, right? I don't have to explain that. If I have to explain that to you, you really need to read the newspaper just a little bit or watch TV or something. But, but like everybody knows, like you can piece that together because you've been watching all this stuff and you know who Sleepy is, you know who MAGA is, you know what MAGA stands for, and you know what ain't giving up means, right? Can you imagine reading that sentence 2,000 years from now in a totally different culture, in a totally different country, and trying to understand what I'm saying? That would be weird. Right? I mean, you would, you would be confused. The only way it would make sense is if you could go back and say, now, when did he write that, and where was he living when he wrote that, and what was going on in November of 2020 when he wrote that? Well, then you can start to make sense of it. A more localized example. <clears throat> I hope you all know I'm kidding here. Uh, I hope the two mayors in town don't meet because they're going to have a throwdown. You, you know what I'm talking about? Of course you know what I'm talking about. You follow the mayors on social media, right? You've seen them on Facebook. You know what position one of them has. You know what position another one has. Can you imagine reading that in another country? Another county even. Can you imagine somebody reading that in, uh, in California and going, what in the world is he talking about? What, the two mayors and a throwdown? And they don't, what? what is he talking about? It, w- it makes sense to us because we live in this time and place. It doesn't make sense to others who don't live in this time and place. And that's kind of how I think it is with the book of Revelation. I think if we were living in that time and place, a lot of the things that John said would make perfect sense to us. But we don't, we're separated by culture, we're separated by time, we're separated by language, we're separated by you know, a tremendous amount of years, even the way of thinking. We, don't th- we think like Westerners, so we even think differently from these things. So all that to say... When you come to the book of Revelation, to interpret it correctly, you really need to look at the historical context and the cultural context and, um, and the, well, just context. You just got to look at the context because that's what matters most when you're trying to understand this book. Uh, and here's, what, here's the context. I'm going to give you a quick, shortened version of it, okay? And we're not going to take, take long today because I want to spend, we get, they're coming back out for another song here in just a minute uh, because the songs were preaching probably better than I'm preaching today. Uh, and I love how he took the songs that we've been singing in this series. And, you know, like those are new songs that have been introduced throughout the series. And today's we wrapped up. We were going to do that for Night of Worship, but it didn't work out like we wanted to. So we're gonna, we'll come back in the spring with a Night of Worship. But here's what's going on. John wrote this letter sometime in the late first century. This is one of the last books written in the Bible. Some people think it was written under Nero, that Nero was the emperor of Rome. Uh, most people think it was Dimension. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right because I forgot to Google it before I stood up and tried to pronounce his name. Um, that is the trick that I use a lot. Uh, so, I, but it was, it was an emperor of, of Rome. It was written in the late first century, and Rome was trying to enforce emperor worship, literal emperor worship. So they were trying to say that Caesar is Lord. And they were forcing people to bow down and worship Caesar as a god. Caesar is divine. Well, for Christians, this goes against our religion, right? We don't believe any politician is divine. We don't believe any politician or head of state or king or or queen or anything is Lord. We believe Jesus is Lord. And so the early Christians were, were going against this Rome edict, and they were not worshiping Caesar as Lord. 
And because of that, they were being intensely persecuted. They were being arrested. They were being imprisoned. uh, They were being killed. And worse, likely being tortured at this time. So there's intense persecution that's come up in the church. John writes the letter under arrest. He's exiled at the island of Patmos. And so John, because John is proclaiming Jesus as Lord, anybody who proclaims Jesus as Lord is a threat to the Roman Empire, and they're being persecuted for this. So John writes this revelation, and it's a vision that he receives from angels, and he writes it to encourage the first century church to stand up against persecution. He encourages them to hold fast to their faith and to stand firm and remain true because there is an epic battle going on between good and evil and the the first century Christians knew exactly who represented that evil in their day and time. There's an epic battle going on and in the end, God wins. The final showdown between Satan and God is coming and in the end, God wins. And so he talks about all this in these first 20 chapters but when he hits chapter 21, I really think it's hard to look at chapter 21, 22 without saying he's talking futuristic there but that's okay because the language he uses is really clear. And I want to end this series by reading the first eight verses of chapter 21 and the first five or six verses of chapter 22. And I don't know if the band can hear me right now, but I'm ready for you guys to come back out because we're going to sing here in just a minute. But but chapter 21 and 22, take a look at this. And I want you to listen to this first in the context of the first century. Kind of, If you're under this intense persecution from Rome, think of how this good news this is, that keep hope alive. But you can also read it in the context of the 21st century and the darkness that we deal with in our lives and our families and our countries and those kinds of things. But here's what John says. He says, then I saw, he's describing a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these are words that are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega beginning and end to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children now you remember the Old Testament what does that sound like sounds like an ancient promise he made to Abraham that he fulfilled through Jesus but to the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God's not only a God of just mercy, he's also a God of justice. And there is a cost to our sin. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, 
And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit. And that's a reference to your Old Testament as well. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. At the beginning of the story, there's a garden. At the end of the story, there's a new garden. At the beginning of the story, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of the story, God recreated the new heavens and the new earth. At the beginning of the story, there is a tree of life that leads to a curse. At the end of the story, there is a tree of life that leads to the healing of the nations. At the beginning of the story, because of the fall of man, there is sorrow, there is death, there is pain, there is suffering, there is shame. There was no shame before the first sin, but now there's shame. That's the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, there is no more sorrow, there is no more shame. There's no more suffering. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more sin. And ultimately, and this is the great promise, there's no more death. Because God will now live forever with his people the way he intended it from the beginning of time. The creation, he intended his people to live in relationship with him. His people freely chose to forsake him. They sinned. And therefore, sin separated them from God. But as soon as they sinned, God began the process of reconciliation. And he made a promise to Noah, I'll never destroy the world like this again. And he made a promise to Abraham that your children will be like the stars of the sky. And he made a promise to, to Moses that I'm making a covenant with you, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And, and he made a promise to David that from your descendancy will come a king who will rescue the nations. And he made a promise through Isaiah. And then he made a promise through Jesus. And when Jesus came, God began the process of reconciling people to himself. He began this process that ultimately ends, we don't know. We don't know when it ends. Because nobody can know the days or the times that Jesus is coming back. But we know that it ends and the end looks like what we just read. Because this story has an empty grave. And, and that's what it's all about. The story has an empty grave. No matter what you're going through right now, no matter what darkness you're in right now, no matter what curse you're dealing with, no matter what sin you're dealing with, no matter what's going on, your story has an empty grave because God's story has an empty grave. And that's the promise of no more sin and death. And the promise implicit in the book of Revelation is simply this. God always finishes what he starts. Stand up, let's sing.